0: Down the middle of the Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode One. psychology they call it the cocktail party effect and makes sense let's say you're at not a cocktail party but a children's birthday party something really noisy you're there maybe as a favor to your mom and it's your little niece or your little nephew and all their friends running around screaming laughing there's a clown making balloon animals over there there's a stereo blasting music against the walls and all the adults are having conversations but you find yourself cornered by your Aunt Martha. And you know, you have to pay close attention. You have to allow her to tell her story and let all of the other sounds go blurry so you can hear what she has to say about her tribulations concerning Sprinkles, her geriatric cat who refuses to throw up on the hardwood floors, and instead insists on hurling on the carpet in front of her television, which is terrible, she says, because she must sit there and wait for it to dry while watching reruns of Matlock and kicking Sprinkles away. Right. You say, as she explains, well, it's easy to clean it up once you let it dry. Now, you can't just uh, nod and uh, let your mind slip off because with all that noise, it's going to disperse into the crowd. You're going to hear what this guy is saying over here. You're going to listen to the lyrics over there. And that's the cocktail party effect. It's your ability to pay attention to one person and drown out the rest so intensely that if someone does want to get your attention they're going to have to say your name a couple of times until they're finally yelling or they might have to tap on your shoulder to the point they have to push you or something. And it makes total sense. We understand this. We've all experienced this. Uh, when it comes to the things that are going in your ear holes, when it comes to sound, we're pretty used to how attention works. But when it comes to your eyes, mm-hmm, you are not so smart. You see. There are several studies in psychology that show that most people believe that everything that goes on in front of their eyes is being funneled down their cone of vision into their brains, as if you have two video cameras that are always recording and laying down memories so that if something surprising was to happen, you would see it. You would naturally devote attention to something that was out of the ordinary. Well, our guest today is Daniel Simons, and he has done the research and shows, well, that's just not true. In fact, he's one of the researchers, along with Christopher Chabri behind the Invisible Gorilla Experiment. You're probably actually familiar with this because they made a wonderful YouTube video that made the rounds uh, over the last couple of years. Um, where You watch a group of people pass a basketball back and forth, and you try to guess how many times they pass the basketball. And in the middle of all that action, a gorilla walks through the group, waves at the viewer, and then keeps going, and a significant portion of people when watching the video the first time never notice the gorilla even though it's right in the middle of their vision. Why is that? Well we're going to ask Daniel about that and some other things coming up and remember at the end of the show there will be cookies and that will make a lot more sense when we get there. Also keep in mind that pretty much everything we're talking about today including all the videos you'll be able to see all that stuff over at the You Are Not So Smart website. I'm your host, David McCraney, and each episode we're going to explore a different topic in the world of self-delusion. In this episode, we are exploring attention, and we're going to talk to an expert on that topic, Daniel Simons, a professor and psychologist in the Department of Psychology and the Beckman Institute for Advanced Science and Technology at the University of Illinois. His research explores the limits of your mind and also why you're unaware of those limits. He also teaches classes in visual cognition and introductory psychology there. And of course, he is the co-author with Christopher Shabri of The Invisible Gorilla, which is a really great book about other ways that we miss what's going on around us and make false assumptions about the world, similar to how we do in The Invisible Gorilla Experiment. He uh, co-wrote the book with Christopher Shabri and The Invisible Gorilla was the first post uh, on You Are Not So Smart. The first time I wrote about any of these topics was Inattentional Blindness. So it's super special to me to have him on board and to have him as our first guest. So let's pick his brain. So, um, Daniel, your book, The Invisible Gorilla, focuses on something you call the illusion of attention. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So the illusion of attention is the mistaken belief that a lot of us have that we really take in everything in our world when we look at at the world around us, that if there's something important or unexpected, it'll automatically grab attention, and that we see a lot more than we think we do. So it's, it's one of several illusions we discuss in the book. And by illusions, we mean cognitive illusions, so cases in which the way we think about our mind turns out to be wrong, that we have a mistaken belief about how our brain is working, how our mind is working.
0: So when it comes to attention, I would assume that most people – would think that everything that's going on in front of them is being absorbed; that all the information you see is turning into memories, and somehow, and um, you would say that's not true, right?
1: That isn't true. Yeah. So, in fact, that's that's what we find exactly when we ask in the national survey we did. We asked people uh, to agree or disagree: Do you think your mind works like a video camera, accurately recording the world so you can play it back and review it later? And you find that more than two thirds of people say, "Yeah, that's right." Uh, And the reason, I think, is completely reasonable. right? Our experience of recalling something feels like you're playing it back, especially if you have really rich visual imagery. It feels like you're playing back something that's an accurate record of what happened. And the problem is memory doesn't work like that. It's not a videotape. It's not like playing back a CD of an orchestra recording. It's more like an improvisation on a theme every single time. You're Every time you recall it, it gets changed, it gets embellished. In a sense, we're all telling ourselves that you know, big fish story that we caught the big fish, it gets bigger every time. Right. Well, we do that all the time, about all of our memories to some extent.
0: So we've all had like, the experience of paying attention to one person at, in a party or in a loud setting, and we don't really feel weird about missing the rest of what's going on around us. Why is it that we don't <clears throat> have that same intuitive response when it comes to visual attention?
1: I think that's a great question, actually, and some of the time we do. Some of the time we know that we're not taking in everything, uh, that there's too much there. Um, What's critical is that we seem to assume that if there's something really important, it will automatically draw our attention to itself. We assume that the idea of the cocktail party effect, hearing your name in a crowd, you'll automatically notice it, is true all the time, and the reality is it isn't. Um, Even that effect only works at most a third of the time. Uh, that we're just not automatically drawn to things, especially unexpected things. If it's something you're looking for, you tend to see it. So I think part of the reason we have that mistaken intuition is that we're only aware of those aspects of our world that we do notice, and we're generally not aware of all the stuff we're missing because, of course, we've missed it. So uh, we built up this expectation that you know whatever we look at, we see, and whatever we see, we're automatically going to notice.
0: You also write uh, in the book about um, a lot of people would believe that as long as their eyes are on the road and their hands are on the wheel, they're going to be a safe driver. And so thinking in that way, a hands-free headset for a cell phone would be a smart choice, but you would say that's actually uh, not really true. Is that correct?
1: That's right. So just because you're looking at something doesn't mean that you're going to see it. And in fact, if you look at Uh, One class of accidents, Uh, collisions between cars and motorcycles, and the same applies to cars and bicycles and cars and pedestrians. The most common sort of accident is what's known as a looked but didn't see accident. Um, Or in in Britain, it's the, sorry, mate, I didn't see you accident. (laughs) Um, And it's exactly that sort of problem, that a car, when it's on the road, is looking for other cars. And the most common kind of accident is a car turning left in front of an oncoming motorcycle, or turning out of a side street with an oncoming motorcycle and just never stopping, not yielding. And what motorcyclists will typically report is that the driver of the car just looked right at them and went anyway. And we find the same thing that people can look right at something that's unexpected. If they're watching say a video and we have something unexpected happen in the video, they can look right at it for up to a second and not see it. Just because your eyes are on something doesn't mean that you see it. And in the case of cell phones, That's a a case of pure multitasking. You're doing two things that tap the same cognitive abilities at the same time. It's like talking on the phone and and driving is a lot like trying to chew gum, whistle, and talk at the same time. Those all use your mouth in in competing ways. Well, having a conversation um, over a cell phone and driving use attention in the same ways. We just don't realize that they do. And there's basically no evidence at all. That using a hands-free phone is going to be any better for that distraction than using a handheld one. The only thing that might be better about a hands-free phone is that you can't text, which is about an order of magnitude more dangerous. Right.
0: So why uh, why is it then um, that it's, it doesn't seem to be as dangerous to just talk to someone else in the car as it would be to talk to them on uh, a hands-free set? I,
1: th- I think that's a great question. And I think there are at least three reasons. So, one is kind of a boring one, which is that it's just much easier to hear somebody sitting right next to you than somebody over a phone. The sound quality on phones just isn't isn't as good as reality. Um, that, in, in principle, maybe eventually will be improved enough that that won't be an issue. The second factor is that having somebody in the car is another set of eyes, and that other set of eyes is not distracted by driving. So they can be looking out at the world, not having to do this demanding task of driving, and they're, as a result, more likely to notice something unexpected happening and yell, watch out. Um, the, the third reason that I think is actually the most interesting, which is that it depends on the social context. So if you're driving and you stop talking, um, if somebody's in the car with you, the first thing they're going to do is look out at the road and see if there's a reason why you stopped talking. Hmm. So you enter traffic or you're merging. So they are able to assess the social situation and figure out why you stopped talking. And the critical thing is that you know that they can do that. So as a driver, you can stop talking with no consequence Mm. because you know that the passenger can look out and see why you stopped talking. You don't have any pressure to keep talking. On the other hand, the person on the other end of a cell phone isn't in that shared context. And if you stop talking, they may think you dropped the call. They may think you're angry at them. Um, They don't know why. And the critical thing is that you know that they don't know why you stopped talking. So there's a really strong social pressure to keep talking as a driver when you're talking to somebody on a cell phone. And I think that's probably the biggest factor is that the social demands of a phone conversation are very different than the social demands of an in-person conversation.
0: That's so crazy to think that you would, could get into a serious accident because you don't want to offend the person on the other side of the phone.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's not that you're, you don't want to, that you're explicitly thinking to yourself, I don't want to offend them by stopping talking. It's just that you're aware of the social context and it, Drives your behavior. There's just a, a norm about what you do when you're having a phone conversation. You don't stop talking for a long period of time. Uh, it's something that makes it awkward.
0: Did you see the video uh, demonstration that Google put out of uh, Google Glass? Mm-hmm. The mock-up of the yeah. augmented reality. Uh, based mm-hmm. off the sort of things that you research, uh, how did that? Uh, what did you think of that?
1: I think it's just incredibly cool, but <laughs> I want to try it. But uh, you know, I think there's a there's a real potential danger there. Um, part of the idea of that sort of uh, augmented reality display is that you don't have to look away from where you're going in order to get information, So it's it's very much like a head-up display that's used by pilots in in airplanes or that's used in some high-end cars where they project your your information onto your windshield. Mm -hmm. And the idea, the intuition is a pretty good one, that you really can't look away from where you're going very long without kind of losing track of where you're going. That's why we see people who are, you know, texting, walking into water fountains or, or walking into fountains in malls or, or you know, walking off the edge of train tracks. It's because they're, they're so focused on what's in front of them that they're not paying attention to reality. The, the problem with the intuition, so that intuition's right, that you really can't look away from where you're going very long. The problem is that we have the second intuition that, okay, as long as we project everything up in front of us, we can keep looking at the world and look at whatever's on these glasses. And that's where we run in trouble because just because your eyes are directed at something doesn't mean that your mind is. Your attention could very well be on the augmentation and not on reality. And in fact, there are studies with pilots showing that when pilots use a head-up display, they're somewhat less likely to notice something unexpected happening in the world in front of them because their attention is not devoted to the world. It's devoted to the display. So just because it's hitting your eyes doesn't mean that you actually see it.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because that was one of the weirdest parts of the book to me is the idea that an, an experienced pilot would be less likely perhaps to see a plane on the runway than someone who may have not landed as many times. Yeah, I mean I think that's it, – it sounds, it
1: sounds illogical. But the way to think about it is that we're, we're, we're tremendous pattern perceivers. Um, we get used to seeing what's reasonable, what we expect to see. If you're a doctor – and you're a general practice pediatrician, for example, you'll see kid after kid after kid with ear infections, with colds, with the flu, with, you know, stomach virus. You won't see too many kids with the plague. Um, Now, a med student who is studying all of the possible disorders that could happen doesn't weight those things appropriately. So they'll give similar weighting to relatively rare things and to relatively common things. The more experience you have, the more likely you are to look for the common thing first and not the rare thing. Now, planes on runways, fortunately, because our aviation system is pretty good about safety, that doesn't happen very often. Some of the worst airplane disasters in history have been what's known as a runway incursion, a plane on the runway. Um, but for the most part, air traffic control does a pretty good job of keeping planes out of each other's path. Um, that said, runway incursions are actually the most common kind of plane accident. Not Collisions in the sky are extraordinarily rare. Uh, It's much more common to have planes bump into each other on the ground. But the idea of that sort of study, that was a study done by Richard Haynes many years ago. He had commercial pilots flying in a flight simulator using a head-up display, so projected their airspeed and their altitude and their pitch onto the windshield uh, in front of them. And he had them flying and making a bunch of landings under a variety of conditions. And then on one of the landings, he had another jet sitting on the runway where they were landing. And several of them landed right through it, not seeing it. Most of them pulled up too late. Um, And the idea is that they're, again, diverting attention to the heads-up display. The plane on the runway is not something you'd expect to see. And because they're not focused on the outside world, they simply don't see it, even though it took up a good chunk of their their view screen. So this was a simulator, of course. Um, They didn't actually put planes on runways. But, But yeah, I think that's exactly right, that the experts are going to be more likely to make that error uh, because it's something that just doesn't happen very often.
0: It's so counterintuitive. It's so hard to believe. Because I think you also say that, um, like, a, an experienced lifeguard might miss a body at, in a, at the bottom of a pool more than um, someone who ha- doesn't have as much experience.
1: I'm, I'm not sure that's true. Um, nice. You know, I think uh, I think an experienced lifeguard will do a pretty good job of scanning the pool. They know what to look for, and in that case, all they're searching for is that body on the pool. Okay. Right. So they're, they're going to be pretty efficient at finding, you know, finding what they're looking for. The key is what happens when something unexpected happens. Um, in that case, their entire job is premised on the idea of making sure there's nobody drowning. So it's not as likely to show up there. That sort of expertise, con- the consequence of expertise is going to show up in cases where your extensive experience of pattern recognition, that building up of experience, kind of the habits and the, and the patterns that you've perceived – but when, they, when they fall apart, when something is out of the ordinary, that's when you run into problems.
0: So, um, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: That's okay. I was just going to say that you know, the, diagnosing the rare disease is a particularly hard thing to do, and that's why so often when there's a really extraordinarily rare disease, it doesn't get picked up for a while you know, because most doctors with a lot of experience aren't going to think of those sorts of things first. There are exceptions. There are people whose job it is to be the the diagnostician. They're actually real-world versions of of Dr. House. Um, They don't work like he does, where a patient comes in from the emergency room and they immediately diagnose bizarre diseases. Um, What typically happens is patients will spend years trying to find out what's wrong with them. Doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist will try and figure it out, and they'll be at a loss. Finally, they'll send the case to an expert diagnostician who will then ignore all of the previous evidence and say, okay, well, they've ruled all of these other things out. Let's let's drop all of those and look for the weird things. And then they can solve it some percentage of the time. But those are people whose job it is to think only about the weird things, um, not to look for the
0: common ones. So, so what are you studying now? Where is Where is this research headed?
1: Well, lots of things. So a lot of the work I'm doing these days is looking at the question of individual differences. So is there a reason why some people miss unexpected things and other people don't? So when we, when we do our sorts of studies, we tend to find that you know maybe half the people will notice something unexpected. And the question that, that really drives a lot of our work is, is there something consistent about people who do notice and people who don't notice? And the answer so far seems to be not really, um, that we've done these studies with people you know, with undergraduates at Harvard, we've done this with people on the street, we've done this in a wide range of contexts, and we get roughly the same rates of noticing and missing. And it doesn't seem to be the case that it's driven by abilities or intelligence or even personality. Um, it seems to be that all of us, at least some of the time, are going to miss unexpected things. And at some level, for me, that's, that's kind of a relief. because it, it shows that we're all subject to the same sorts of limits, right. and More importantly, we all have the same mistaken intuitions about those limits, and we can try and overcome them.
0: Unity through humility. I love it. Exactly. (laughs) So um, this is a question I get asked all the time, and so I'm going to do this to you, and I apologize. Uh, (laughs) Do you have any prescriptive advice based off of your expertise in this arena?
1: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it it depends on – that's a general enough question. It depends on the specific context. So there are are absolutely things you can do that minimize the consequences of the limits we have. So we all have these limits on our abilities. We all see less than we think we do. We all remember less accurately than we think we do. Um, We all tend to jump to conclusions and see causes where they don't exist. Um, What's interesting about these sorts of cognitive illusions is that we don't realize we're doing them. So, We've had these limits all along, and I've taken, you know, we've we've been criticized on occasion for you know bringing up all of these negatives about us, and as if as if by telling people that we have these sort of shortcomings, that somehow we're causing them to come into existence. But of course, we've all had these limits all along. There's nothing new about that. What we're trying to do is point out that if you know about them, you can take steps to avoid them. So, let's take the illusion of attention. This belief that things will automatically grab our attention if they're important. Um, one thing that we directly recommend is put your phone away when you're driving. And it's a really simple step, but it's a very strong temptation to pick up the phone and answer it or to check your email while you're sitting at a light. If you do that, you're making an assumption implicitly that if something important were to happen, you'd notice and you could stop your phone conversation or you could stop doing what you're doing. The reality is that we can't. So you're much better off eliminating the temptation in the first place and you'd be much safer as a result. Now you might go through your entire life driving, talking on the phone and never getting into an accident. But you also won't know if you've caused any accidents because you're distracted and you might not realize what you've done. Um, you might not realize how distracted you are. So if you come to that realization that, Hey, I'm not going to notice everything. Not everything's going to grab my attention. Then you can take steps to avoid that mistaken intuition and minimize the risks That that happens in in a safety context all the time. Mm -hmm. So um, doctors have this problem, right? Doctors are all now carrying phones around the hospital. They're getting distracted. They're dealing with multiple patients at a time. Nurses have it even worse. They're dealing with multiple patients at a time. They're prescribing medicine at the same time. They're being distracted by something else that's happening. And if you know that you have these limits on your memory, you're going to realize that, hey, I might think that I gave this prescription and I actually didn't. Um, You can actually compensate for that by using external memory kind of using something that allows you to check whether you've got it right so checklists have become a big deal in especially in surgery to make sure that all the steps are followed and every doctor will say well of course I follow all those steps but if you look at the data a lot some of the time they forget steps because they're distracted there there are other contexts in which you can use the same sort of thing so if you're in a meeting And pretty much everybody's had this experience that you have a meeting, everybody comes to an agreement, and then two weeks later, nobody agrees on what was agreed to. Um, And it's completely natural, right? Everybody has a memory of that meeting. Everybody remembers it vividly, thinks they got it right, and can't understand why nobody else can remember it the right way. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that all of us have distorted memories, and all of us might have it slightly wrong. So there's a simple strategy, which is at the end of a meeting, send a summary of the meeting to everybody with your conclusions, and get everybody to respond and say they agree. And at that point, um, a week later, whether or not you remember what actually happened, you have the documented record that, this is what I thought happened at the time, and this is what everybody agreed to. It eliminates that sort of illusion of memory that we think we've got it right by giving ourselves documentary evidence
0: of what actually happened. That's so great. And it also helps eliminate the consistency bias that I've always thought, What I think now, uh based up, And thinking that's what you thought back then. What is um, when it comes to uh, your research? You're one of um, a bazillion psychologists who have been hacking away at the, the idea of, of eyewitness testimony being reliable. <laughs> Why do you think it is that we uh, continue to use eyewitness testimony in um, the courtroom? And do you think that it has a uh, there's a lifespan to this? Is this something that's going to last for a long time, or what are your thoughts?
1: Well- It's a tough problem because our entire justice system, all aspects of our justice system are based on the concept of a witness providing evidence. So no evidence is introduced into court unless a witness is providing it. Even expert testimony, the facts of the case are introduced by witnesses. So our entire court system, dating back hundreds, maybe more than a thousand years, is based on this idea that a witness can provide accurate testimony. And in many cases they can, or in many cases they can provide the facts. Um, I think the Problem is that we now know from both research in cognitive psychology, but also work by groups like the Innocence Project, that many of the cases in which people are freed from death row from DNA testing, the people were convicted on the basis of faulty eyewitness testimony. And it wasn't that people were lying necessarily. Um, They might really genuinely have remembered seeing the person and pointed them out in the court and say, yeah, I'm absolutely certain that's the person and been wrong. But we're really subject to the power of that sort of confident testimony. Again, it's an illusion of memory. Right? We assume that if people say they remember something vividly, they must be right. And if they misremember something, they must be lying. Mm -hmm. Um, So it becomes really easy to trust them if they say, yeah, I'm certain of it. We're also uh, generally too trusting of people who are confident. So if somebody speaks with certainty, we tend to give them more weight than we should. We assume that certainty is the same as accuracy, and it's often not. So I think it's a, it's a tough one to overcome because the courts are based on this sort of testimony. Lawyers and judges are now much more aware of these sorts of limits than they used to be, but it's hard. it's built into the system in a lot of ways. And you still get judges who really don't know what they're talking about and exclude Testimony from memory experts on the grounds that it's obvious um, to everyone, or on the grounds that it can't be right, So you, you get them to get testimony excluded for both reasons.
0: It's it's always weird to me. To the more I learn about psychology and the more I read about it, the more I see it not being applied in arenas like politics or law. And it's um, it's one of those things that I'm I've, it's I'm keen on trying to figure out when and how it's going to affect things positively and push us toward a more rational uh, way of seeing those two uh, human endeavors?
1: I think that would be nice. I I, I think it does play a huge role in politics, but not always for the good. So one of the examples we talk about a lot in our book was from the Democratic primary in 2008 when Hillary Clinton uh, remembered 10 years earlier when she'd been first lady landing under sniper oh, yeah. fire in Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And it was a huge deal in the campaign. Um, it turned out not to have been true at all. There was a nice, uh, she, she remembered having to run for cover when they landed and, you know, ducking for cover, getting to the hangar quickly. <laughs> and it turned out that there was a nice greeting ceremony on the tarmac and a Bosnian child read her a poem and Sinbad, the comedian was there. And uh, <laughs> there were no, there was no evidence whatsoever of sniper fire. And it was, it, it has all of the hallmarks, and I, I don't know what was going on inside Hillary Clinton's head, I'm not there, but it had all of the hallmarks of a classic sort of memory distortion, a classic false memory. Um, presumably she had landed under somewhat dangerous conditions at some points in the past. Bosnia had been a war zone, um, and she just kind of conflated things. But what was interesting was not so much that she had a memory distortion. It's that, unlike the rest of us, she had a press pool following her around that could prove her wrong.
0: Right.
1: And What was really interesting to me was not just that she had a memory distortion and that it was proven wrong, but the reaction in the media was one of two things. Either she's a compulsive liar or her memory is completely deranged. And the reality could be her memory is completely typical. It's just that we don't have the opportunity to have our memories checked very often. We don't realize when we're wrong and something feels right, we assume it is.
0: Yeah. Maybe one day we get the Google Goggles uh, that – are always recording life and we can always go back. (laughs) We'll be able to uh, check ourselves. Um, Yeah. So um, before I let you go, just uh, if people want to follow your research or keep up with what you're doing or see other things you've got out there in the world, what sort of, where would you point them?
1: Sure. Uh, The easiest place would just be my personal website, which is just dansimons.com. So D-A-N-S-I-M-O-N-S dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, you could also go to our book website, uh, theinvisiblegorilla.com. dot and, com, uh, and that one. Both sites have videos and, and information.
0: And I will post uh, your latest video um, with this when I put it up because um, you have a, a really awesome YouTube video that plays on people who have already seen the Invisible Gorilla experiment. Yep. <laughs> And it it totally got me, it totally got me. I got a second oh boom, whenever I saw it. So great work. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, thanks. That was, uh, po- that was the point. Thanks so, so much for coming on. Uh, it's really a pleasure to talk to you. Your
1: sure thing, my pleasure.
0: Okay, it's time for cookers. Each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast will end with me, David McCreaney reading you some psychology slash um, self-delusion news. And while I do that, I will eat a cookie, which is baked from a recipe that is sent in from a reader slash listener. And if I pick your recipe and I make the cookie and I eat it, I will also send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. Since this is the first episode, I put a call to action out on the You Are Not So Smart Facebook page and ask people to send in their recipes. And you can always send these recipes to David at you are not so Smart.com. and that's where I will pull from each time we have an episode. Um, if you can, please include a picture of the final product because I'm going to also put together a Pinterest page for uh, all the recipes that get sent in. But either way, I'll take a picture of the final product if I make it. But I'm anticipating getting a slew of uh, recipes as I did this time. And I won't be able to make all of them, but I will be able to post all of them on um, this Pinterest page. So, what is the news and what is the cookie? Let's just smash these two together. So, what we have is... The foreign language effect, thinking in a foreign tongue reduces decision biases, and the ultimate chocolate chip cookie and Oreo fudge brownie bar. Uh, the cookie was submitted by the uh, reader Joe Frya, and so Joe is going to get the signed copy of the book. All right, so what we're going to do here is an experiment. A uh, We're going to forge into new territory, and that is I'm going to read an abstract while also eating a delicious... Cookie, which by the way is actually made from fudge, Oreos, brownies, and uh, chocolate, and brown sugar, and butter, and all sorts of other stuff. Okay, so uh, the abstract. Here we go. Oh, cookie first. Mm. Oh my god! Well, that's that's wrong. Is what that is. This, I imagine, is like um, if you're if you were on death row and you knew this existed, this is what you would ask for. Um, or this or like an entire jar of pickles or something like that, uh, or like five steaks with gravy between the steaks. Uh, this is insane and it's like 17 different kinds of textures and it's just chocolate stuff. Um, yeah, all of my reward systems are are like 1000% go and I'll have the recipe for this. Um, on the website and also on the Pinterest page. So, let's take another bite. Mm-hmm. That's madness. Okay. The abstract says, this is a study by, I'm sorry if I'm getting these names incorrect, Boaz Kaiser, Tsurira El Hayakawa, and Sun Yuan from the University of Chicago. Published in, dear God, it gets better, it's chew. Um, a journal of psychological science. Would you make the same decisions in a foreign language as you would in your native tongue? It may be intuitive that people would make the same choices regardless of the language they're using, or that the difficulty of using a foreign language would make decisions less systematic. So we discovered, however, that the opposite is true. Using a foreign language reduces decision making biases. And it goes into a little bit more detail. Mm. Okay, so what are we talking about here? I think this comes from Gazenica, is that uh, if you are left-handed, then you are biased toward your left hand, and you tend to use it whenever you could choose between your left or your right hand. With certain ways of thinking, for instance, there's confirmation bias, where you're more likely to uh, try to seek out confirmation of your beliefs or confirmation of your ideals um, than you would be to seek out disconfirmation So you are biased to think about the world in some ways and not in others, uh, more so in some ways than in others. So in this study, they were checking out how would people, uh, how would their biases be affected when they were speaking in their first language or their second language, one that was learned in a classroom. And they were specifically studying the framing effect uh, and loss aversion and risk aversion. And, There are several studies in here, but I'm just going to talk about one to give you the general idea, and that is they had people divide into two groups. One group read the following. Recently, a dangerous new disease, by the way, this is actually in the study. I'm reading from the study. Recently, a dangerous new disease has been going around. Without medicine, 600,000 people will die. In order to save these people, two types of medicine are being made, and you must choose between them. If you choose medicine A, 200,000 people will be saved. If you choose medicine B, there's a 33.3% chance that 600,000 people will be saved and a 66.6% chance that no one will be saved. Which one do you choose? Okay, Now think about that for a minute. Now here's what group B thought. Here's what group B was given. Uh, Same setup. Recently a dangerous disease has been going around. Without medicine, 600,000 people will die from it. In order to save these people, two types of medicine are being made. You pick the First medicine, 400,000 people will die, guaranteed. And if you pick medicine B, there's a 33.3% chance that no one will die and a 66.6% chance that 600,000 people will die. Which one do you choose? If you're in group B, is it a different choice for you? Well, that's what's awesome about the framing effect is that this is actually the exact same choice mathematically uh, in both groups. Because in both selections here, uh... Everyone is going to die without medicine, but in group A, they were given two medicine choices, and the first medicine guarantees that 200,000 people will be saved, which means that 400,000 people will die, and the second medicine gives you a 33.3% chance that 600,000 people will be saved, which means there's a 33.3% chance that no one will die, and a 66.6% chance that no one will be saved, or a 66.6% chance that 600,000 people will die. So the only difference is the framing of it. Is it framed as a gain, people get saved. Was it framed as a loss, people will die. And the researchers know from previous studies that when people are given this option, they're much more likely to go for the sure thing of saving lives when it's presented as a possible gain. And they're much more likely to forget about that option and actually go for the really, really risky choice when it's presented as possible loss. Because either way, they're trying to maximize gains minimize losses you it scrambles your system to think of it in terms of loss instead of in terms of gains um so knowing that's what people do will they do the same thing when they are presented this problem in their second language and the re- that stu- the results of the study i take a little bite here mm. Mm. still delicious surprisingly uh, So the results of the study showed that no Whenever you're presented this problem in your second language and for some people it's Japanese, some people English, some people French, the asymmetry of choice goes away instead of being really risky in some situations and not so risky in others. You are the same level of risky in both situations, um, which is surprising. So why is this? Well, of course, when you actually, in any study, when it comes to that part, we don't know why this is just more evidence to better understand the universe, but Um, all research studies do include a discussion at the end that says, Hey, maybe this is what's going on. There's more research needed. And the researchers in this study said that, um, they feel that it's most likely that there are a lot of factors that come into play when you use your second language that distance yourself emotionally from the problem at hand. And without the emotional impact of your intuitive systems, you become more rational and, you're more, um, you use a better set of reason and reasoned responses than you would if you had, um, you, if you're using your first language in which you would have full, emotion of, emotion of? <laughs> full emotional um, facilities at your disposal. And all the associations that come with your emotions and your associative memory and all that sort of stuff. Really crazy stuff. I will put a link to this at the website. And I'll also put up this delicious cookie recipe and a picture of what it, uh, what the final product looks like. That's the end of episode one. You can find links to all the things that we talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. The music beds were provided by Blackguard SMG. They're basically the first sponsor of the show. BlackguardSMG.com. And when you get music beds from these people, You get them in layers so that you can just take out the bass or take out the drums or take out whatever. Really cool. Thank you very much, guys. Opening theme by Caravan Palace. The name of the song is Clash. And they have an album that just came out. You should go buy it.